Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel according to John. Gospel of John, this morning as we're continuing in our series called Believe. Not believe the Gospel of John, it's just believe. And that's what the Gospel of John is about. He wrote at the end of uh, John in chapter 20, 31, he says, I've written these things so that you would believe. And if you're using one of the blue uh, Bibles that we make available for you, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can make your way over to page 1054. I say that because some people are unfamiliar with how to find books of the Bible, so we encourage you to bring a Bible, use a Bible, and if you don't have one, then certainly we would like for you to take one of these. But if you uh, already have one and, and you would uh, just would like to have one in the version that we use, the English Standard Version, then feel free to take that. And if you want to uh, drop uh, uh, an offering and put it for Bibles, because that helps us buy those things so we can make those available to other folks. All right? So the Gospel of John, and as you're, as you're looking at that, we'll read uh, and start in uh, just a moment here. But I uh, was thinking about a book that came out in the late 60s or so, and they made it into a movie in the late 60s. Now, if any of you, many of you weren't even born in that period of time, but if you have been around and you know that Christian movies have come a long way, and that's an understatement. If you look back at some of those early Christian movies, they're, they're rough, they're rough. And, uh, but this was a book, and they made it into a little movie, and I think you can find it on Vimeo, um, but the book, the book in the movie is called The Gospel Blimp. Has anybody ever heard of that before? The Gospel Blimp. Well, uh, let me tell you about The Gospel Blimp. It's satirical. Now, if you don't know what satirical is, if you know what the Babylon Bee is, that's satire, all right? Uh, and uh, it means that it's kind of uh, a little bit making fun, but in order to make a point. Political cartoons are satire, all right? So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a somewhat a, a comedy, if you will, of a satire about some well-meaning Christians that had this grand idea of how to reach people for Christ. And this group or this individual came up with this idea to buy a blimp. Now, do you know what a blimp is? The Goodyear blimp, the air ships, right, that go around. and some, some, So they're going to they're going to have this blimp, and it's going to, you know, say Jesus on the side of it, and uh, they take off with this, and they start going around and, and taking money to raise to buy the blimp, and they're going to they start this organization and a PR campaign and raising money, build a, a corporation and have a home office and board of directors of this gospel blimp that they're going to say this is going to this is going to reach more people. For Jesus, this, this blimp. And so it goes, and they get the blimp. And the guy who came up with the idea, it, it, you know, he has to quit his job, and he goes full-time into the blimp ministry. And eventually they have to hire a PR agent, and they outfit him in a uniform, and he's now called the commander because he's flying the blimp. He's head of the blimp, right? Ministry, right? And uh, then, you know, it, it kind of offhandedly shows how he's neglecting his family because he's spending more time out uh, raising money and playing golf with big wigs to try to raise money for the blimp ministry that's taking off. And they finally get the blimp airborne, 
And uh, their idea is they are going to start raining down cellophane-wrapped tracks, little pamphlets. We have a track rack in the back now. Little booklets, little tracks wrapped in cellophane so they're weatherproof. And just start littering the neighborhoods. And you can imagine what people thought of that. They weren't enthused about this blimp ministry. And if that wasn't good enough, somebody said, you know what we need for this blimp ministry is we need to attach a PA system so as we fly over neighborhoods, we can just project this, the, the, the word of the Lord just, you know, at, at high decibels over the communities. You know, at all hours, we're just going to preach the gospel and rain down all this literature into the neighborhood. Well, you can tell, you can get an idea of how that might would go over. It kind of reminds me of that episode on WKRP for Thanksgiving, right? But it wasn't quite, uh, some of you don't know what that is. Um, but one of the guys that was instrumental in starting the ministry, he gets disillusioned and begins to think, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't really the best way to reach people for Christ. And he quits. And he starts to kind of hang out with uh, his beer-drinking neighbors, and, 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 and he just starts building some connections, relationships. And the, the blimp people are seeing him do this, and they think he's kind of backsliding. He's becoming a more worldly because he's not in the blimp ministry, and he's just hanging out with people and socializing neighbors and doing things. Well, next, what happens is that he and his wife start leading these neighbors and people he's hanging out with. They start, he starts leading them to Christ. And he thinks, you know, maybe, maybe the blimp isn't the way to go. Maybe it's just this building relationships and connections to tell people about Jesus. Well, the blimp people never get it. They never respond to it. And uh, so you may want to check that out sometime. It'll, it'll bless your life. But, um, but if you're wise, you won't, because I just told you the whole movie right there. And you, 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 you can thank me later. But, but as we come to John chapter 1... Uh, that's in a way, it's not about the blimp ministry, but it's about reaching people for Christ. And the title of the message this morning is called Following Jesus, Following Jesus. Now, uh, I completed this message, but as I looked at it, I decided to split it in half for time's sake. So we'll do part one today and part two next week. So this morning, if you have your listener's guide there that was given to you in the bulletin, we're just going to do the front page, one and two, looking at those, and then we'll finish it up next week. But this way we don't have to kind of cram everything together. And what we find here in John chapter 1, and the entirety we'll, we'll look at this week and next week, is verses 35 through 51. Oh, isn't that neat? I didn't even turn on my clock yet, so all that was free. All right, so... Aren't you lucky? All right. So Jesus is calling. You know, Jesus had 12 disciples. Disciple just means learner, student. That's all disciple is. And it was a common term. And he had 12 of individuals, 12 men that he called disciples. Now, disciples used sometimes as a general follower. But when we think about the word disciple, we usually are thinking about the 12 disciples. And so here in the beginning of John, before John wraps up chapter 1, we see uh, how Jesus initiated in this initial call to five different disciples. 
and, and we really kind of get some insights on, one, what discipleship looks like in a little, uh, little bit, but also about uh, what it means to follow Jesus, but also what we can learn from this in leading others and introducing them to Jesus. And there's some things here that uh, I think are, are very helpful. Now, there's three things as we look at these different individuals. There's three parts that we want to pay attention to under uh, each one. And one we want to notice is that the different ways or methods, if you will, of evangelism. Evangelism is just telling people about Christ. Different methods, same message. The message never changes, but methods uh, oftentimes are different. Uh, what are the barriers? These individuals uh, had, had barriers that uh, they each of them had to overcome. We had barriers and maybe still have some barriers. What if we're, we're overcoming to, to follow Jesus, to be a disciple? And then we want to pay attention and notice something I think is kind of neat is that Jesus, uh, when he reached these individuals, he did it differently with each one. It's almost as though, uh, again, I want to say he, well, in a way he did. He kind of tailor-made in his call to them because he's calling them uh, 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 to follow him, but the way that he approaches that is unique with each of these individuals. So as we walk through this, those are three things you'll see in your listener's guide that we want to pay attention to and make note of. So the first this morning that we want to look at is the two that uh, I've kind of put together because they uh, are brought together uh, to follow Jesus. And number one, that's Andrew and John follow Jesus. Andrew and John follow Jesus, number one. Now, we kind of pick up from where we left last week. Remember John the Baptist? Remember him? Uh, we talked about John the Baptist last week. And so this picks up where we left off with John the Baptist, who was the, uh, he, he, there was three traits about John. He was sent from God. He was a uh, voice in the wilderness to announce the way of the coming king. And uh, the third one just went out of my head. He was a voice, he was sent, and I don't remember. So that's what happens when you don't write it down, all right? So I'll remember it at 3 in the morning uh, when I'm letting the dog out or something. He was a witness, yes, thank you, thank you. He was a witness, he was a voice, and he was sent, yes, thank you. Ah, see, that was just a test. I knew it all the time. I just wanted to see if you knew it. Uh, but, but so these guys, Andrew and John, they were disciples of John the Baptist. And one of the things that we noted about John the Baptist was John the Baptist exhibited tremendous humility. Again, he had his own following. Remember, he was outside the city baptizing, and people were coming to him, and he had a message of repentance, and people were flocking to him. So he had his own disciples, if you will. And we remember at, uh, in John chapter 3, remember he said uh, in announcing and talking about Jesus and how Jesus is the Lamb of God and how he must increase and I must decrease. Well, talk is easy, but here we see a way that we actually see a tangible way that he demonstrated what he said. Um, and so uh, John and his two, these two disciples, let's pick it up and read Verse 35 through 37, John 1. So the next day, the next day of 
the dialogue the previous. The next day, again, John, now remember John here is not the author, Apostle John, but it's John the Baptist that's being discussed. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, his, his followers, his students. And verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now look at verse 37. The two disciples, his disciples, heard him say this, and what did they do? They followed Jesus. I think that's kind of cool. Now, it would have been easy for John to say, you remember John was a cousin of Jesus in his earthly relationship, and it would have been easy, suppose, that John, maybe, you know, we would kind of sympathize, we'd say, Jesus, look, I've worked hard to get these guys. And, you know, you have your followers, I have my followers, we're all kind of in the same group, tent, right? But can you at least let me keep my followers and you can have your, you know, in other words, go get your own disciples. No. He, he, his job was that witness. He was a voice. He was one that only, he wasn't the light, he only reflected the light. His job was to be always pointing people to the Lamb of God, to Jesus. And here we see a real simple example. You could just kind of fly by it if you read it too fast, is that he announced and said, there's, there's the one, if you will. And what did his two disciples? That tells you that he wasn't interested in just trying to keep them all for himself. It wasn't a personality cult that he was developing here. He was focused on Jesus. You know, some groups, even some churches are kind of personality cults built around the leader. And you go there and you hear more about the leader, and they're the hero of their own stories, and you don't hear a lot about Jesus. So you always be aware of that. No, John the baptizer pointed people to Jesus. Now look at verse 40. And it says that one of the two who heard John, John the Baptist, speak and followed Jesus, they identify him. His name is Andrew, and he is Simon Peter's brother. But it says, but there was two. Where's, who's the other one? Now, what's interesting is, is that when you uh, study the Gospel of John, you read about people that, uh, or read books of people that study it real in depth, one of the characteristics of the Apostle John, I know it's a little confusing, the Apostle John, who's the author of this book, that he rarely, if ever, mentions himself by name. You don't ever see that. Sometimes he'll say the other disciples. Sometimes it's a term, the disciple that Jesus loved. I mean, and I'm sure that rankled the other 11. Like, John, why do you always got to keep saying that? You know, like, he loves all of us, right? But he'll use that phrase. But you don't ever see John referring to himself. He's never not talking about himself. But here he is speaking about uh, his encounter along with Andrew uh, of when they met Jesus. He's talking about the day that he met Jesus Christ. He's talking about the day that he and Andrew, even though he's not mentioned by name, but he's the one here that's the second person that's identified. So let's look at verse 36. 
And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, this is John the Baptist, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, let's, and this is where you have it on your outline there. What is, again, because there's three things we want to pay attention to here. What was the, if you will, the evangelistic method that Jesus used? Well, what was used by Jesus really was used by John the Baptist, but obviously it was used uh, by the anointing of Jesus, and it was preaching, preaching, all right? The evangelistic method in this situation was preaching. What did John the baptizer say? Look, the Lamb of God. He was announcing. He was proclaiming. He was was preaching, if you will, who Jesus is. Look, there's the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice sent by God. Some of you came to Christ that way through the preaching of the gospel. It might have been in a church, a pastor. It might have been an evangelist. You might, uh, depending on your age, I guess, and it's still today, you might have been in a service. You may have heard Billy Graham. Many people have come to faith in Christ through uh, Billy Graham on television or at a stadium or, you know, now his son Franklin and other people. But, but my point is, is that you came to faith in Christ. Initially, your entrance, if you will, was that somebody was announcing, preaching the gospel, and you responded. How many of you came to faith in Christ that way? How many of you came to faith in you? You heard and you responded in some measure, okay? So again, that's what I say. God uses all different ways. But this is the way here that uh, they, these individuals were reached. And you know, what is the, if you whittle it down, what's the greatest sermon a preacher could say? And it's exactly what John said, and I'll paraphrase it a different way, but this is essentially what he's saying. Here's the best message that any evangelist preacher could say, and it's this, look to Jesus. Not look to this great church. Not look to what great small groups we have. Not look at what, you know, neat little cute outlines we got. No, look to Jesus. That's the only message that matters. Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Exalt Jesus. Next time you watch or hear somebody on, the, on a radio, podcast, or TV, teaching, or whatever, how much of Jesus do you hear? It's amazing how many times I can listen to some teaching or whatever, and I hear a lot of motivational talk. I hear a lot about chasing your vision and your dream facing your destiny, all that, but I hear very little gospel of what this is all about. Listen, if you're listening to something and it says it's Christian or it may even be in a church or whatever, and they can give that same talk at the Kiwanis Club and nobody will be bothered or offended, maybe something's wrong there. But look at the other... uh, Well, before we leave that, that, that message of John... The Lamb of God, that's the best message of all. And I remember reading a story 
Uh, some of you know, here and are familiar and you hear me quote uh, a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was in the 19th century, in the mid-1800s, uh, his church in London, London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, I mean, it was five, six, eight thousand, maybe close to ten. It was a mega church before people started using mega church names. His sermons were published in thousands of newspapers all over the country. He was a faithful, consistent gospel preacher. His Treasury of David, his commentary on the Psalms, you can get most of that stuff free online. You'll be blessed by anything you read of Spurgeon. Uh, he didn't go to college. He was a common man, but God anointed him, and he was used mightily to preach the gospel. And uh, he tells of a story uh, uh, that, that I, I remember. There was a, I believe there was a fire early in the uh, church, and they had to use a uh, facility there in London to accommodate the people. And In actuality, I think some of these places sat over 20,000, and it was called the Crystal Palace. And one day, and I'll pick it up and read it as Spurgeon is telling the story. In 1857, a day or two before preaching at the Crystal Palace, Spurgeon writes, he said, I went there to decide where the platform should be fixed, where it should be set, and in order to test the acoustic properties of the building. So he said, I'm standing there where I think I want the pulpit to be, and to test the acoustics, I said in a loud voice, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And Spurgeon says, in one of the galleries, way off where it couldn't be seen, a workman who knew nothing of what was being done, all of a sudden heard these words. And they came in that moment like a message from heaven to a soul. He was smitten with conviction on account of sin, he put down his tools, went home, and thereafter he had a season of spiritual struggling, found peace, and found the life by beholding the Lamb of God. Isn't that interesting? And it was on his deathbed, Spurgeon writes, that this man told the story of his conversion. He didn't write a book and start going on a tour, he just kept it to himself, and on his deathbed, he told the story of his conversion. It was the result of God speaking to him through a single verse of Scripture that uttered by Spurgeon. And when Spurgeon preached in that building a day or two later, it was to a crowd of almost 25,000 people. Now, the author that told the story, Randy Alcorn, says, But such is the power of Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not only of the world, not only of a potential 25,000 people, but of one man working in a building on that day. And he says, I'm sure that man is thankful that when Spurgeon was given the acoustic test, he didn't say, testing, one, two, three. There is power in the name of Jesus. When I hear somebody teach the Bible, I want to hear about Jesus. I want to hear something that exalts Jesus. But there's a second area that we want to pay attention to, and that is the barrier. What is the barrier here in this Andrew and John and their 
coming to Christ? Well, I would suggest to you that the barrier is tradition. Tradition. What is it? What, what? They had to leave something in order to follow something. What did they have to leave? They're, the fo- they're disciples of John the Baptist. John, had, you know, this has been a good run. He's a good teacher. He's been providing them good ministry and, and purpose and hope. And, and they had a good thing. They were very comfortable with that. They liked John. They liked his teaching. They liked what he was doing. They were, they were connecting the Old Testament about this coming Messiah. But they had to kind of make, remember in our uh, experiencing God study in a few weeks, we'll get to one of the seven realities of experiencing God that Henry Blackaby does, and that's a crisis of, of belief. Once you're, once you're given the truth, there's a crisis, if you will, of what are you going to do with what you heard? What are you going to do with this? You're just going to be like, well, okay, that was nice, but I don't think I'm going to do anything with it. I'm, I'm going to go back. They had to make, if you will, they had to make a choice. And do they leave what they've traditionally been doing up to this point in order to follow Jesus? Sometimes the biggest barrier is sometimes what we've done in the past. And I would even say those of you who have been in church a long time, and you come into maybe a church like this or another, and all of a sudden you're learning and discovering things about God and the Scriptures and Christ, and you're being pushed to move in a certain direction of what God is doing, and you're like, well, wait, that isn't that in the way I was brought up, or that in the way, you know, preacher Fred taught me for 15 years, and I'm learning and growing in a lot of different things, and sometimes that tradition can kind of hold you back. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Sometimes that way of doing things, you can say, well, you know what? We never did it that way. Well, maybe that way isn't, wasn't so good. Or here, let me say it this way. Maybe that way was the way of doing it in that season of time. One minute, that is bad. It's just that was in that season, that's where God had you. In this season, Andrew and John, that was the season. But in that season, it prepared them for what? It prepared them to go after Christ. And I like this of how when you look at each one of these, and again, this is just something I would suggest to you, of how Jesus' call uniquely fits their character. How he does it differently with each one. And what was his call? His call was relational. It was relational in nature. Uh, Some of you that are familiar with you know, a personality, and again, some of those things all are different, but you might be familiar with this term. There's a term in, in, in one particular that probably one of the most familiar uh, personality studies that talks about different types is the personality of somebody who is sanguine. How many of you have ever heard that before? They have a sanguine personality. A sanguine personality is a person who's a people person. You may not know the term, but you're like, okay, that's me. You're a people person. You're energized by being around people. Doesn't matter how tired you are. You're, just, you're, just, you're the one, you're like the Martha. You're the, you're the one getting the stuff together for the party. You're, you're doing things, and you just you enjoy uh, just all that energy that comes about because you are relational in nature. You're relational. That's, that's kind of your love language, if you will. 
And so you're energized by people. And it seems like Andrew or John like the, are, are like that. And here's, here's what I want to show you here. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following Andrew and John. And what did he say? What are you seeking? If you have the NIV, it says, what do you want? You ever have somebody following behind you and you're like, what do you want? Like, what are you doing? You know, uh, what do you want? Why are you seeking? Now, their answer is kind of an odd answer. I mean, they're like, what do you want? But what did they, how did they answer? They said, Rabbi, and John puts in their teacher. You know why you see that in parentheses? Because his, a Jew would know what Rabbi means. But a Greek wouldn't know what a rabbi is. So he puts that in parentheses so the Greek writers would understand what rabbi is. He said, Rabbi, where are you staying? That's kind of an odd response to his question. Would you agree? That's like, okay, what? what? But see, they're relational, and Jesus understood that. And because they were saying, in essence, they were the relational type They were saying, Jesus, we just want to hang out with you. We want to be with you. Where are you staying? We want to go and we want to just just be around you. We want to spend time with you. And what did Jesus respond? He responded in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour. They're relational. Jesus knew exactly what, what it would take to connect these guys. You with me? He knew that these guys needed, wanted that relationship. They weren't interested in religion. They weren't interested in another movement. They were part of a movement. But you know what they wanted? They wanted to feel the relationship, connectivity with Christ. Some of you, that's what you need. Some of you, that's what you enjoy is the sweet relationship of Jesus. Andrew and John followed Jesus. Maybe some of you say, you know, I need that. I have religion, but I really don't know. You guys talk about Jesus like like you know him. Hello? You talk about Jesus like he's just right there with you all the time. Because I was, you know, you may have been raised where Jesus was just kind of this austere theological concept out here of religion. But you talk about Jesus like he He talks with you and walks with you, and there's a relationship there. Some of you desire that in your own life. And Jesus invites you to follow me because Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll never abandon you. I'll be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Andrew and John understood that and came and followed Jesus. But notice, secondly, Andrew and John follow Jesus. But secondly, here's Peter, the big guy. Peter. Peter. Andrew. This is what, this is really, uh, we'll see some things about uh, how we can reach out to people, the love of Christ. Look at verse 40, John 1. Now, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. John doesn't put his name in there. Simon Peter's brother. Verse 41. Andrew, he first found his own brother, Simon, that's Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Now do you see in parentheses, John writing to Greeks who wouldn't know what the Hebrew term Messiah meant. 
which means Christ. When we talk about Jesus Christ, Christ, Messiah, Christ is the Greek version of what Hebrew uh, Messiah means. But that just shows you that John is cognitive of his audience who is, has a Greek background. He wanted to make sure that he's not using terms uh, that they don't understand. So he says, look, we have found the Messiah. Verse 42, he, Andrew, brought him, big brother, Peter, to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, or your King James might say, Simon, son of Barjona. That just means Barjona, just means son of. You shall be called Cephas, again, which means in the Greek, Peter. Now, what was the evangelistic method that Jesus used here in regards to Peter? It was a personal witness, personal witness. You see, one brother, Andrew, goes to another brother and says, I found the Messiah. Now, what I love, kind of just as a sideline, is, you know, sometimes you read between the white spaces. Now, don't build doctrine in the white spaces because that will make you into a cult. That's dangerous, all right? Don't do that. But sometimes you just have to kind of, you know, kind of step back and see what's kind of what's being said by what's being stated by not being overtly stated is the fact that there was an obvious anticipation of looking or believing that there would be coming a Messiah. Because it was something, as I said last week in that day, and that was one of the reasons John the baptizer had there was such a, a response, and there was others that weren't legit, but there was a sense of uh, kind of like in our own day, in a different way, different way, you know, at the end of, uh, you know, in 1999, if you wrote a book about Y2K, or you wrote a book about the year 2000, or what was going to happen about the end times or whatever, I guarantee you probably would have gotten rich. Because Christians just suck that stuff up. And interestingly, when you go back to the turn of the 19th century, 1899, and when it turned over to 1900, it was in the late 1800s that you had other groups in that day start. Seventh-day Adventists, because they're obsessed with their odd schemes of end times. Jehovah's Witnesses. They predicted Jesus returning so many times they just stopped doing it. Uh, and, and so that was when, because there's something about the calendar change. And oh, it must be the end. And so there was that anticipation. Now, I don't know about the calendar changing, but for whatever reason, in the culture, there was great anticipation among a lot of people. Because look, remember, Israel was under the thumb of, of, of Rome, they paid ridiculous taxes. They uh, had no personal rights. I mean, it was just a... And they were ready for the Messiah coming in the glory of King David that was going to kick Rome out, that was going to establish the, the military glory and, and uh, honor that Israel once enjoyed instead of being the slaves of Rome. And so you see that when Andrew came and said this anticipation that the Messiah, we found him. It just seems to me that that was something that was really on their minds. Unlike if you remember when King Herod got word about a Messiah or a king being born there when in the 
in the birth of Christ there in Luke and in Matthew. And he brought in the religious folks, the Jewish scholars, and they just kind of had an indifference. It was pagan, non-Jewish wise men, as we sometimes call them, that were anticipating and looking for the Messiah. And the very people that it should have been on top of the coming Messiah, they were indifferent. They were like, oh yeah, we know that supposedly there's some ancient prophecies. And remember that dialogue with Herod? That's why John once said he came to his own and his own received him not. But there was hunger. There was anticipation with Obviously, Andrew announcing this, but we're talking about Peter. So Andrew comes to his brother's house or maybe finds him by the seashore, the boat. They all kind of have this fishing business where he finds him. And he says to them, uh, we, we found the Messiah, not I. He says, we have found the Messiah. And here's what I want you to pay attention to. What does Peter do? What does big brother do? He trusts him and goes with P- uh, Andrew And Andrew brings big brother to Jesus. Now, I am the youngest. I have three older brothers. Two of them are in heaven. One is not in heaven. He lives in West Virginia. All right, that's a West Virginia joke. I just zoned out of everybody. I think he's watching, so he's probably laughing, all right? Now, being the youngest of four brothers... I think the difference between me and my next oldest brother who's passed away was about 10 years. So I was, kind of, I'm, was the baby. My wife says I was spoiled, but that's just her erroneous views, all right? But uh, my brothers usually did not take counsel or advice from their little brother. I took counsel advice from them. But if I said, well, here's what you need to do, more than likely, they ignored me because what do you know? You're our little brother. So think about this situation. And that kind of brings us to um, uh, the, the, the barrier. I might as well go ahead and mention it. And that's the barrier of pride. Because Peter, big brother, he owns, even though there's a partnership between Peter, James, and John, and Andrew in this fishing business that we learn about in the New Testament, what I think is significant is that big brother goes with little brother and listens and follows and is brought to Jesus. Big brother said, what do you know? Or how about Andrew? Even though we're talking about Peter, what about Andrew? Andrew could have said, you know, I'm always getting shortcut on significance. You know, here I work for these three other guys, and I'm kind of the lowly, low partner in the deal of this bit. You know, and, and maybe Andrew found the Messiah, and maybe he just decided, you know what? Hey, let them figure it out on their own. I'm going to keep this news to myself. Maybe I can be the lead guy in this Jesus movement, and I'm not even going to tell Peter. So pride cuts both ways, but... There had to be that barrier of pride, you know, because I learned uh, with, with my two boys uh, about an almost three-year difference, they were great pals till my oldest son started getting uh, in first grade and started getting his own buddies, and all of a sudden, little brother became an annoyance. You didn't want to have to be led around by your little brother. Well, Peter 
obviously had to overcome that barrier of pride because he allowed his brother, his little brother, to lead him and take him. He didn't make him, but he just led him to Jesus. And I think that's worth noting. He allowed little brother to take the lead, and Peter goes to meet Jesus. You know, as you look at this little sequence here of how Peter was sought by his brother, Andrew, Andrew went to find him. He was brought by his brother, Andrew, who brought him to Jesus, and he was caught by Jesus. He was brought, but it was Jesus who caught Peter. But notice Jesus' call, if you will, of, that was unique and t- fitted to Peter and his personality. And that call that fit Peter's character is that Peter was purpose-centered or purpose-driven. And here's, here's, here's what I mean. It says, verse 42, He, Andrew, brought him, Peter, big brother, to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him, Peter, and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, Simon, every, these names oftentimes we, we don't uh, quite appreciate the way the names and meaning that they had. But Simon meant pebble or little stone. Peter, his name means rock. Remember later on in Matthew 16 when Peter hit a grand slam when Jesus was saying, Who do men say that I am? And what did Peter? He said, and I have to quote it from the King James, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. You didn't get that on your own. But God, who any truth about Jesus is always revealed. Okay? Um, and he said, upon this rock, Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, he wasn't saying, he wasn't referring to Peter as the rock, he was saying, upon this rock of confession of who he is. You know, some, well, I won't get into that. That's, (laughs) won't get into that, all right? So Peter's name translated means rock. Now here, here, we talk about how these other two guys and their personality type was more sanguine, people-oriented. Peter's personality was choleric, or sometimes we might say a type A person. I mean, Peter's personality, he had, he, he liked a cause. He liked a purpose. I mean, Peter was passionate. He was the first one always to get in, and sometimes get in without thinking. Remember when he jumped out of the boat when Jesus was walking on the water? I mean, he was just passionate. Later on after the resurrection, when he saw Jesus on the shore, what did Peter do? He girded up his, uh, his uh, towel, whatever it was. I don't know if he was out there naked or whatever, fishing, but he got himself a little together and jumped in that water and just started going to the shore. Peter, I don't want to say he was impulsive, but he was just a passionate guy. He wanted, be, he wanted purpose in his life. He wanted something that was bigger than himself. And what did Jesus say? Look, right now, you're Simon. You're a little guy. You're a little, little rock. 
but I am going to make you into a rock. I'm going I'm to give you a new identity. See, this is the problem sometimes we as believers have, is that we become so enamored with what we were yesterday. We don't understand what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, that therefore if you are in Christ, you're a new creature. You're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. But he's saying, look, you follow me, you're going to be a rock. Your life has not been a rock. What is a rock? A rock, how many of you, what's the insurance company? Prudential Insurance. The rock of Gibraltar is their logo. Why? Because that's a stable picture there. They don't have a picture of a goat as their logo. That's a joke. That's a joke, some of you. All right, all right. I'm going to stand over here. Some of you are dozing, all right? It's a picture of stability. You can put your life and savings and insurance with us. We're, we're the rock of Gibraltar, Prudential. Paramount Pictures, they have that picture of that mountain. You know, because it's, again, it's a projection of strength. Peter, you're not there yet, but I'm going to give your life purpose. You remember what Jesus, later on, we know another way that this was... Uh, that Jesus brought this out, and uh, that is in Mark 1, 16 to 17. I'm not sure if I put it up there. But you see the same, you see the same way Jesus, in, in, a, in a different setting, called him. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. That's purpose. You're not going to change the world by catching little fish. I'm going to give your, I'm going to give your life more meaning, Peter. I'm going to give your life more purpose. I'm going to give your life a sense of doing something you could never, ever dream of doing yourself. But you got to follow me. You got to let me build my life in you. You're a little stone, you're a little pebble, but when I'm done with you, you're going to be a rock. What did Peter do after the resurrection? You remember in that period after, remember he denied Jesus before he was crucified during the trial? And then after the death, there was that little period of time, and Peter was around the other disciples, and he just down said, I'm going to go fishing. You get the feeling of like, well, that was a good run. That was interesting while it lasted. I guess I'll go back and become Cepha, or I'll go back and become Simon again. But then when he saw Jesus on the shore and he jumped in the water, and remember Jesus uh, brought healing and forgiveness in his life. P you know, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. And then feed my sheep. There was that restoration. Peter, you follow me. You'll be the rock. You know, some of us need, and some of you here too, you're not interested in just following religion for religion's sake. You want your life to have meaning. You want, when it's said and done, to say, this life made a difference. Not that you made more widgets than everybody. I've done a lot of funerals where all the awards from all the, the company that they worked for all the years, all the trinkets and all the coffee mugs and all the little plaques and all that were just put in a big box and put in some attic and some grandson that eventually got it and said, doesn't mean nothing to me and went in the trash. 
All that stuff is going to be burned up one day. All that stuff that we spend, have spent hundreds of dollars on, you hauling its way around the country, right? Think about half the junk we've moved around, right? Jesus gives us meaning and purpose to do something. Why? It goes back to what we're learning on Wednesday. God is always at work. God pursues us. You know, we say these guys found Jesus, but guess what? Jesus was never lost. Jesus found them. He uses means to do that. Use John the Baptist, use Andrew, but Jesus was never lost. They're the ones Jesus found them. And Jesus enables us to know we know he's working all around us. He invites us, he pursues us, he invites us to be a part of his agenda. Isn't that what we're learning on Wednesday? He invites us to be, not Jesus, um, here's here's my resume, here's my agenda. He doesn't care about your agenda, right? He doesn't care about it. You know what he does? He gives you that blank sheet of paper and says, sign at the bottom, I'll fill in the top. That's what discipleship is. That's an abandonment of being a follower of Jesus. We'll pick up next week the next two. So if you want to hang on to your outline there. But let me just conclude. Got a few minutes. Let me just conclude this morning a little bit. And this is not going to be on your handout. I did this kind of after the fact. But one of the people, again, Andrew, is a tremendous example of what it shows to lead people to Christ. What was the first thing he did? He went and got his brother. That was the first thing he did. I got to go tell my brother. I got to go tell them we have found the Messiah. You ever have, you ever be around, maybe you're one of these people that if you go out to eat with them and you're eating a good meal, right? Y'all have had a good meal lately, right? Okay, good. And, and you're around this person and it is so good, if you, they will cut you off a bit, they insist that you try it. And you're like, you know, I, I, don't like, I don't like salmon. Oh, you're going to like this salmon. This is like no other salmon you've ever had. But, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want it. Oh, you've got to have it. It's the best, you know, just to get them to be quiet, you're like, they're so passionate. They want you to have some. That's like Andrew. He was so passionate. He had to share this life-changing experience. And so this, they'll be all on the screen at one time, but I kind of put something together I'm calling Andrewology 101. You know, you took Biology 101. Here's Andrewology 101 and some practical, just simple application if we're going to be more people that not only follow Jesus but lead others to follow Jesus. One, we've got to have a conviction of the need for Christ. If we don't have the conviction that what the Bible says about those without Christ will be eternally lost in hell, then it will never really be a motivation and see the importance. 
You know, we need the kind of motivation that if our neighbor's house caught on fire, we're not going to stand outside, gee, I, I hope they're okay in there. Boy, I hope they're all right. Well, you know, might as well go to bed. There's nothing you can do. No, you would do everything in your power. You call 911, you're beating on the door. You know there's little kids in there. Why? Because there's a sense of urgency. You have a conviction that if they're not rescued, they are going to die. Secondly, start in your circle of friends and family. That's the hardest sometimes, isn't it? Because they know you the best. It's easy to go knock on some, you know, go to some stranger. You'll never maybe pass or see again. But your family, you think it was hard, again, for Andrew to go to Peter? They know you the best. They've known you and know all about you. But start in your own little circle of people that are influential. Thirdly, lead them to Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Don't lead them to the Republican Party. Don't lead them to the Democratic Party. Don't lead them to anything, some movement or some cause. Lead them to Jesus. Not some side agenda. Make sure you're leading them to Jesus. Fourth, everyone will reach different kinds of people. Everybody has different styles and different personalities and unique gifts and qualities and, and, and recognize that there's going to be some people that you find easier to open a conversation about in spiritual things, and other people will find it more difficult. And be prepared. Be prepared. We have, uh, Connie has had that burden and a vision to start a tract minister. Tract is just a simple little uh, pamphlet of, of some gospel truth. They're very well done. Don't just go and hoard them all and keep them in your glove compartment. That I'll be really irritated if you do that. Don't do that. That's a waste, all right? Don't do that. Take and use these as a tool. You can use them to give to somebody. And don't be one of these people that stuff them in your bank teller thing. Don't. I had a bank teller show me a box of all the stuff that people send. That's annoying to them. Kind of like the gospel blimp, all right? Be relational. As you're talking with somebody and you're saying, I've got to go, but can I leave you something to read and maybe we can get together again and talk about it? Here, let me, I have something here. That's what you use them for. But my point is, be prepared. Have something that will carry on the message the Holy Spirit can use when you are physically gone. Something they might just stick around and, and, not, and then some, at some point they may pull that thing out and read that. And again, God can use those things. All right. Six is be yourself. Be yourself. You don't try to be somebody else. And last, look, we've been given the Holy Spirit as believers the Spirit is called the helper. Here's a, here's a Greek analysis of that word, helper. It means to help. It means to help. Guy, you got that, buddy? All right. It means helper. He helps. He's available to help. Help. Do the heavy lifting. All they did, as we'll see, all Andrew did is he just brought him to Jesus. Guess what? It's Jesus who does the saving. It's Jesus who does the changing. It's Jesus who does the transformation. But guess what? We need to, we need to do a better job at helping people and introducing them to Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray.